In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Well, welcome to the rector's cupboard. For uh, any new potential listeners, this is uh, an episode that we are going to be talking about theologian Karl Barth. If you are not a new listener, you've likely heard us talk about him before, mm-hmm. or at least quote him extensively. But this episode, we kind of directly talk about Barth. Um, and we were really honored to have a great conversation with Dr. Marty Folsom, who has written, like, I mean, it might sound insulting to call it like the idiot's guide to Karl Barth. It's called but I think that's pretty appropriate, actually. Isn't it called Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics for Everyone. Yeah, it's a much yeah. Which is way kind of, of a funny it. title when you think of it. Well, like, it's a kind way of saying, you know, the idiot. It should say for everyone too. who's interested. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel niche. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but it's not everyone. But yeah. very, very helpful. Because oh, for sure, but it also prompted a conversation as we, soon as we stopped recording. Yes, Amanda said, "I think we need to talk about Carl Bart a little bit before we do play the interview." You guys make a lot of assumptions. I think so. I will say in this room, I'm the least theologically educated between you two, and I think the average person probably has not encountered Carl Bart. It's pretty <laughs> well, and I would think particularly in in evangelical circles, he's not a theologian that's held up. And we can no. get to that later. We can layer some suspense into mm-hmm. that. But our friend uh, Todd, who is also here, although he's been silent thus far. No, I said something. He oh, said some okay. words. Yeah. He's here too. Um, the first Car- time I referred to Carl Bart in a paper, I think it was at Regent College. I think I actually had the line Bart, and I'd never really come across Carl Bart before. So I think I put you didn't realize the problem Bart, with that? and then and then comma uh, or no uh, uh, Bart Carl not Simpson. <laughs> Still kind of embarrassed about that today. So, and like, yet you just my Carl Bart ignorance. My Carl Bart ignorance was extremely high, even in theological school. I didn't really get to know Carl Bart stuff until well after I finished my degree at Regent, and it was mm-hmm. through a reading group. But anyway, so. I mean, we Todd is a big fan of Carl Bart. There's there's several pieces of Carl Bart paraphernalia around the office, such as a button. And yeah, but I haven't purchased any of them. No, but people have given no, them to you. No, but people yeah. recognize that he's and kind a of a cute your, little like, like illustration, theological and hero. <laughs> so here's a, something for me to admit. You know, when Todd started talking about Karl Barth many years ago, I just kind of assumed that he was very, very old and from you know yesteryear. Well, he, he was and, oh, right. Like, like I assumed he was a theologian like that came many, many Gregory of Nyssa. E- exactly. Oh, like origin. Like yeah. Like like Augustine. In my mind, it's and, like black and, and white and dusty. Together. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then well, that happens a lot. You're like, it's it's either there's no context. It's either a hundred years ago or, or seventeen hundred years ago. Yeah, exactly. And in this case, it's actually relatively recent. Well, he 20th, was twentieth century. Yeah, he was popular enough to be on the cover of Time magazine. Time magazine in nineteen sixty something. I've got that magazine here, a copy. Do yeah. Speaking okay. of the paraphernalia around yeah. the, the studio, um, so you know, to my surprise, there he was in color, no less. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
a picture. Yes. Which is interesting, right? Because you can see why he appeals to me, because he's old, white, European <laughs> theologian. And I think we just need more of there those. Is dust- <laughs> <laughs> there is a dusty look to it. Yeah. yeah. So, Todd, for the those who don't know, who like is? me, who didn't know... Who the heck is Carl Barth so and I'll why start, do we care? I'll start with the thing. I've been to a few Barth conferences at Princeton University, Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, like this seminary. alone, Carl Barth has conferences. Se- there's Carl Barth conferences. There's Carl Barth Center. This is just in in the United States. Then there are equivalent and ones in Europe and other places. So at Princeton each year, they have a Carl Barth conference, an academic conference. I think every other year they have a Carl Barth pastors conference so they're, where they're speaking this theological perspective, but more geared to pastors, not necessarily academics. So the question of who is Carl Barth, I'll start with saying what you hear at so many of those conferences, even the academic ones, you'll hear people go up and say, I'm not a Carl Barth specialist or I'm not a, I'm not a Barth scholar. Um, so apparently to be a Barth scholar that's a whole other level. Does right? that mean that so someone's like me, dedicated their not life only to I'm, studying? Yeah, him. kind of. But not only am I not a Bart scholar, but I'm not even a Bart like theologian. Or I don't. I largely enthusiast, like, maybe um, fanboy. I'm somebody who. <laughs> I'm somebody who. I like that one. Thank when you. I when I went into this Carl Bart reading group at Vancouver School of Theology, like through them, it was just an evening thing that I was invited to through some friends, and uh, and found started reading Karl Barth's theology, a few little things went, oh, this is so much better than I was a pastor at the time for many years. And I'm like, this says some things that I've, I think I've always kind of felt, but he articulates them in a way that, oh, this is actually the kind of Christian faith that I'm interested in. And so who, who Karl Barth is, he's a theologian, um, but he writes differently than particularly those of us who are familiar with like the standard evangelical mm-hmm. kind of theology um you know believe in jesus accept jesus as your lord and savior and you know he'll cleanse you from your sins and this kind of um bart's going to talk about so many things in in different ways and his theology is hopeful his theology is future looking um it's not always easy and so for most people yeah you're going to other sources which is mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons that we asked uh, dr Folsom to be on the podcast exactly because yeah. um Bart is yeah I mean would you would you call church dogmatics like a tome well church <laughs> like, so church dogmatics huge. is and and uh, Marty Folsom will tell us this in in the conversation. But it's just this, yeah, it's the, like you guys say in the conversation we have that it takes up a whole shelf on our bookshelf yeah. here. It does. It's like, you know, a number of seven, 800 page volumes, right? Written from 1932 was the first one. I'm only getting this because it's in Marty Folsom's book. 1932 was the first one. 1967 was the last one. And he died before he could finish this series. He wanted to, he, he intended to add another one. Yeah. I um, think for those who are listening who maybe aren't familiar with his work, it, and we talk about the entire shelf it takes up. Something we're, about we're it kidding. reminds me of like a shelf of encyclopedias yeah, from, encyclopedia. you know, my grandparents' yeah bookshelf yeah. like it's yeah these yeah. huge hardcover books I mean, and it will show a photo yeah. on our website but then you you read it and so for somebody like me who i was reading this then as a pastor so i been a pastor for years who love my work love the people at the church love the church but was like mindful that the way i spoke about faith 
um, was not necessarily the way, the same way that people in the congregation held faith or some of those assumptions. Mm-hmm. Like you have concepts in the evangelical church, I also like you knew growing up, some degree mm-hmm. you amended. Uh, things like the rapture, the mm-hmm. kind of uh, what what sin is. what. So even a, so you open up church dogmatics and you come across a section where Bart is talking about believer and unbeliever. So those are words that in our evangelical yeah. upbringing, they're big, right? But Bartz says something along the lines of, he says, the division between believer and unbeliever is entirely unhelpful in understanding God yeah. or mm-hmm. yourself or the other person or faith. Uh, so the division, he said, there's a distinction between someone who believes in Christian faith and somebody who doesn't. And it's gracious to remember that distinction. You don't want to assume that somebody else has your belief. That's not gracious to them. But the division between believer and unbeliever, yeah. Bart said, will never help us in growing in faith. In fact, he said, if you insist on using the term unbeliever, we must only use it to refer to ourselves, right? So you're reading this in those big tomes mm-hmm. and you're like, this is, or or his concept of sin. Yeah, where he talks about sin being only penultimate. Right, penultimate, not ultimate. So I'm sitting in a reading group with Richard Topping, president of EST, um, and some others, and Richard was hammering on this thing. It was in, so this is how Bart people work. It was in 4-2, you know, they'll say things like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember. We of course st- it was. Where did you start? We started in 4-2. Um, so this doctrine of reconciliation. It's like the it kind has of, its own um, language. It does. Yeah, but in 4-2, there's this section that talks about kind of the, in a way, the nature of sin and how, and so Richard's going, sin's, sin's penultimate, it's not ultimate, that was important for Bart, and he starts unpacking it more, we're reading some of the sections, and what you realize is that in my evangelical kind of background, sin was, I could argue, largely ultimate, like yeah, there's definitely. this problem, it's sin, so that's the first thing, mm-hmm. and, then, and then Jesus. And highly personal. And Bart's yeah. like, you can never ever start with sin, you have to start with God's design before you start with humanity's yeah. disorder. And that's something that mm-hmm. it's not that I didn't, so these are the kinds of things that are in So there. it's safe to say Bart wouldn't participate in an altar call, or call for one? Yeah, I don't know, I mean... I, I, it's it falls back to that believer unbeliever right I think about the altar call and this idea that like you have to I mean you know, another a, a quote I, by by Carl Bart well Carl sure I'm Carl our guy Carl yeah um when I think someone asked him like when were you saved and mm-hmm. he said thirty three. No, he, he said he said he pointed to Golgotha, yeah. Yeah, to like, Golgotha. Hmm. He's well, like, well, first of all, first of all, he resisted the question and yeah. kind of said, like, I don't, I don't understand the question. Yeah, um, it's a different way of understand. looking. At Whereas, when were you saved in in a Baptist church or a you had a brethren church growing up? It was like it was at it yeah. was at Daybreak so Point Bible Camp, and Bart's, it was blah blah blah. Bart's mm-hmm. concept of of things like salvation, of things like sin, of thing like they're 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 just a very different lens to view Mm -hmm. things through. And I think that they take kind of the larger church history as well as like the larger kind of like universe and like God into context as more important than my particular perspective. Yeah. Um, well, Bart's it takes whole the pressure thing, off. Bart's whole thing, and it sounds so, really? it, it's so jaded this, this, to kind of say this, or it can be heard in a jaded way. Bart's whole thing is Jesus. So, yeah. um, the revelation of God is Jesus Christ to, in, in Christian thinking to Bart. He's not trying to force people who aren't Christian to to be Christian in that way. But but in, if something is Christian and if a theology is Christian, the revelation of God is Jesus Christ. Uh, so the Bible for Bart actually is not the revelation of God. The Bible is witness 
to, to the, revelation the revelation of God, God through Christ. And if it's not pointing towards the word, then it, so he says the Bible is the word, the word about the word is basically what. And again, that's different than I heard. And yep. so I'm, yeah. I'm coming across that and I'm going, I actually think this is what I actually think. This can, this, and you know, mm-hmm. most people listening know those are the kinds of things that resonate with you, the things you already kind of felt, but then somebody articulates it for you. And you realize that in, in, in my reading and then in my engagement with this material, I'm able to go, this actually also sounds more biblical to me, more Christ-centered to me. It seems to be a Christian faith that makes sense. It's not an yeah. us and them kind of faith, right? That in terms of the altar call stuff, like I, those, all the church practice stuff, I don't know, but I'm not a Bard scholar. I'm a, <laughs> um, the, but I think, I think it's like Allison said, some of the limits there that some people it is by altar call or some, but Bart's going to help you to ask the questions and then hopefully understand what's actually going on there. Mm-hmm. Where is the agent of well, salvation? And doesn't what he salvation talk about mean? salvation as more of like, like he talks about that you are awakened yeah, he talks to salvation. Mm-hmm. Well, he says, he says, it's like you, you, you become aware of it at a point, mm-hmm. but the action of salvation is something that Jesus does. So he calls it awakening to conversion, Bart does. And um, so it's it's interesting that he's still... So he's writing that. I can't remember well, when. Well, I mean, I think... Amanda, when was 4-2 written? 1955. <laughs> I, think it was, I think it's in 4-2. It might be 4-3.1. What but, paragraph? Um, yeah. Well, yeah. later. But that awakening to conversion is... So the way I pictured this when I'm first reading it for the first time mm-hmm. and having had it in reading group, I'm like, oh, this does make more sense. I want to delve into this a bit more. I was sitting in a coffee shop, JJ Bean or something, and I'm, I'm reading this... Bart stuff, like a digital version that I have. And then Bart is saying around conversion is that like what God has done for, for me, he's done for all. And so mm-hmm. then I'm just, I'm literally sitting in the coffee shop looking at other people going, my evangelical faith has taught me in a sense to think, well, I'm, I'm better than these people. I don't mean morally or whatever, but I'm more enlightened. Mm-hmm. I'm more yeah. what, and, and there's this separation kind of thing that happens and awakening, awakening to conversion. Bart would say, Yes, the Christian, he is talking about Christian faith. The Christian has come to an awareness of, of what God has done, but doesn't have some higher claim um, than, than, any, than anybody else. Bart's language there is like the realization that we're all on the same plane, like we're all on the same surface. There's none yeah. that are. So all of these things kept coming up, and I'd read them in Bart. And then, and then I found out when he's writing um, well, I mean, the context that he's writing in is actually exactly. really important. He um, He's in Germany during, like, the uprising through the Nazi regime and then after the Nazi regime. I don't know if he stayed in, in Germany. Well, he was kicked out. He was kicked... He- so he's teaching in Germany at universities, and he was he was kicked out because he he became a dissenter. Yeah, um, and connected largely to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah, as well. no, you I, know more about that. Than, well, than I mean, I what, last semester I had a course on on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and so like I didn't realize the scope that they overlapped and influenced each other, and how much like Bart personally mentored Bonhoeffer, mm-hmm. and how very similar their theology is yeah. on most things actually. Yeah. So at the time now. You can draw parallels. I'm not saying they're equivalent, but at the time, you're in an advanced country, Germany, Europe, mm-hmm. in the 19 like late 20s, early 30s, and uh, national socialism, Nazism yeah. is on the rise, and Bart and Bonhoeffer, in a sense, both doing this theological investigation and and write this declaration, which stands against um, 
against the majority of the German church at the time. So you could, yes. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but there are parallels to what's happening in the United States where mm -hmm. uh, Christianity has become, to many people, has become Christian nationalism. Um, yeah. And then it gets so aligned with power, the state, uh, patriotism. Well, it also gets it deeply aligned with, with identity. And this, I mean, Dr. Folsom gets into... Um, Bart's opposition to natural theology, but Bonhoeffer was also opposed to it as well because, I mean, Dr. Folsom explains this much better, but essentially you say like there's, there's a natural creation that God has put, like an order, like a hierarchy. And so I know with Bonhoeffer's work, he pushes against that because that was used by the National Socialist right. Party mm -hmm. to say like, we are literally a superior race to Jews. Yeah. And so, and through the work of, I would say manipulating and appropriating Christian theology, they like ascribe that as a God ordained order. Mm -hmm. And so I like Bert's writing against some of this stuff. So when he's talking about this is bigger than right now, this is mm -hmm. bigger than you, this is bigger than this country. Part of what I think he's trying to do is pulling and pushing against some of this very like national it was, it was very much not identity. the popular opinion of the day so mm -hmm. you were saying no well i was just gonna say i think this is really helpful for people listening just to have a sense of place and yeah. time um where these things were being written and to your point about feeling like i don't necessarily believe these things that um have been handed to me from the pulpit or something doesn't sit or right with it just this. doesn't yeah. feel quite right right yeah. so there's this moment like you had this epiphany kind of or like there's there's a freedom and a bit of a weight lifted and like other people are thinking yeah the way that i was thinking yeah i think that's really helpful um and so before we even go any further i think it's important like we talk about dogmatics a lot. What is dogmatics? Yeah. Well, so the, the, his, his, the, the key work, and he wrote a lot more too, which mm -hmm. is crazy. This is, I mean, probably hard to believe. Um, but, but his life's work to some degree is this church dogmatics, um, which in our conversation, Marty Folsom will bring out what mm -hmm. they each mean, but it is kind of funny to go. Neither word is, is, you know, nobody's looking for church or dogmatics. These I mean, days. Um, it kind of makes me think of Asterix and Obelix, to be honest. Yeah. So every time somebody says church dogmatics, well, that's, so that's all I can think but of part these of, cartoon characters. But part of, at the time, the reason he calls it that is he didn't want to write a systematic theology. He didn't want to write a thing that's like, you know, the, the, the way Here of thinking this. at Here the time. Here is this. Here so is he this. came out of actually the more liberal background but and and then spoke against that so he kind of fits nowhere um yeah the, he pushed against the religious conservatives things. christian conservatives rejected him so he and he had some battles with some some key theologians at the time so one of the things i always think of is um like francis schaefer right mm -hmm. and in my upbringing as a young person in a church baptist church growing up i start hearing about absolutes you know, we need absolutes. Yeah. The world is compromised. And mm -hmm. as Christians, we have to have absolutes and God yeah. cares about absolutes. Uh, Bart had arguments with people like that over, over things like that, uh, saying things like, what, I, I, it's Jesus that matters. Back to the, like, what, what is mm -hmm. our, what is this faith about? The faith can't be about this, this kind of understanding. That doesn't make any sense. And that's going off the rails. Um, and so dissenting in Germany at the time, again, I'm not drawing the parallel. I actually have it as more of a, like a playful, although there's some darkness in it, but prayer exercise to go. They were called the German Christians at the time. Mm. The ones who aligned with the, the National who, uh, Socialist Party. And they were by far the majority. Yeah. Yes, they were, which by I think... By far the majority. And there's so... There's actually been a mythology that's been perpetuated, at least right. in evangelical Christianity, that Bonhoeffer and Bart would be... Bart was part of what's called the Confessing Church. Yeah. Bonhoeffer and Bart were part of that. Um, there is a mythology that I, I had 
told to me that like those were representatives of German Christians, which is not the case. They were by far the minority. Yeah, that's mm. that's a good point. Like there's I feel like there's some history that goes yeah. on yeah. because you have, and I'm not saying it, but at least I'm I'm entertaining it in my mind. There what are is, what is the word? What are the words evangelical church going to sound like? 50 years from now. Exactly. Right? German Christians. If we can make some predictions. If you didn't know what German Christians meant in terms of this era, yeah. Yeah. German Christians were the were, were largely the majority of the Christian church that lined up behind Hitler, at least for, for most of the time. Yes, I mean... There was Hitler, eventually a break. Hitler mm-hmm. was an elected official supported by the large majority of Christians in Germany. That's right. And so... You have, and it's not to say, you know, we're right and everybody else is wrong, but those kinds of things help too. Then after the war, there's some famous lectures that Bart's giving. Um, some of the, some lectures come, there's a book called Evangelical Theology. It's a small book that has a series of lectures. I think that one he gave in the United States. He famously came to Princeton. Um, and that's, I think, when that Time magazine mm. was released as well. Did a tour, loved um, Martin Luther King. Right, and yeah. he had a close connection there. It was a civil American Civil War kind of buff, and so there's an interesting kind of all, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff there. But those little a series of talks that he gave become a book called Evangelical Theology. There he has a point at the beginning that says like, so evangelical not meaning what it does now. Evangelical meaning actually like good news or kind of. And there he would make the point evangelical theology is modest. So we use that all the time. Mm-hmm. So he would say evangelical. He did say evangelical theology is modest. Because if something about if something about God is true, it will prove itself to be true. You don't have to holler it. You don't have to scream it. It's mm. not a fight, right? And to the credit of even most church people, so I'm in this reading group and I'm finding these things, the penultimate ultimate thing is an example. Then I go back to the church where I was preaching at the time. And to a large degree, the board there, the elders there, you know, that back to that structure, um, they liked hearing this. It made mm-hmm. sense. I, I would say that's because it's true, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. um, it's not, but yet this theology does not sit well. It's largely been rejected through through the kind of 20th century. And now Bart's theology is is being in some ways rediscovered because it is it is a, a fulsome, we're interviewing already fulsome. Oh, well it done. is it is a <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it has there's some heft to it, mm-hmm. obviously. It's a theology that is not some of the ways that we think that don't sit right with us, but it is Christian theology. Whereas it's not just deconstruction and nothing else, right? Mm-hmm. There is there is so much more there. And lots of people have this. But there's all kinds of other problems with Bart. There is. That. I mean, and I think that... I think that Allison alluded to that earlier. Yeah. No, there, there are there are layers. Uh, I think one of the things that I've just personally learned a lot more is in the last several years is just like trying to have grace for people's humanity and not putting people up on a pedestal as either this binary of evil or totally, you know, holy, Mm -hmm. that that generally doesn't bear out for anybody. Um, But I mean, I think I would be remiss, like in most of the pushback that I've heard against Bart has actually centered more on his personal life that's that's more recent, by the way. Is it? That's because of when you... Yeah, because this yeah. has mostly come out in English. In the well, yes. No, that's another thing. It, t- ten this was all so. in German and was translated. Mm-hmm. So like, there, there's people who just didn't have well, plus, access to it um, before. People translated his... His First letters. of all, they came out. They were released. So that And that wasn't that long ago. His letters to Charlotte, who you can yes. describe. And so the kind of... Some of the... Some of these things you're talking about came up. Yeah. So, I mean, I felt like I wanted to have a little bit of like a full disclosure because if anybody Googles Carl Bart, then things like this are going to come up. He, 
there were complications in his personal life. He had an assistant. <laughs> we'll say that. Um, he had an assistant, Charlotte uh, von Kirschbaum. Baum. Von Kirschbaum. Um, and Who did a lot of writing of church yes. dogmatics. No. What Not I'm, just like transcribing. No, no, but, no. Yeah. Like she was, she was key to his work, but I think typical to the time, assistants don't get credit. Her name isn't on Regardless there. of gender. Well, especially female. Assistants assistant. don't get credit. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, some of the brilliance of church dogmatics, yeah. I think would be safe to assume comes from, from her work. But I've heard people refer to her as a mistress of Bart or that he had an affair. It would seem, from what I understand, he got married very young to his wife. Um, Nellie. Nellie. Like, I think Nellie was like 18, 19. She was young. Like, she was really young. I mean, these things kind of happened in that time. You have like an academic who's in their 30s and marries like an 18-year-old. Apparently, that didn't used to be creepy. I think we might have different feelings about that now. So they get married. They have several children together. And then um, Bart meets Charlotte and I think falls in love quite quickly with her. Well, these are some of the letters like eventually came out that th they had expressed their love to one another. Yeah. There was, mm. there was a relationship there for sure. Yeah. Um, it, some and people call it like almost like a, like two wives. Yeah. She moved in. She did move in. Eventually. So, so Nellie, I believe did not, would not divorce Bart, which frankly, I understand uh, a woman not, wanting to grant someone a I divorce. Think Again, some place. I think Time there's some place. back and forth yeah. on that. Mm -hmm. like it, it's complicated. So, I mean, I don't wish to say that Bart was some sort of like <laughs> example of, you know, a great husband or any, like, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I know that. I don't think that he didn't love his family. Yeah, I, I just there's there's a great treatment of this. The best treatment I've read of this in, is in, I'm looking at the book, uh, Christian, Christian Tietz. Um, German uh, translated, uh, great book though. And yeah. she hits this head on. I've heard her yeah. talk about this at Princeton. I've heard, because as you say, when you Google it, and uh, I'll be really honest, the reason the majority of people who reject him I think don't like his I theology. see the reason is actually theological. Yeah, but they attack his personal the, life. The personal life, which is complicated and troubling, mm -hmm. say both, becomes a ticket for them to do that. Yes. So, for example, the, not that long ago, I was reading somebody, Southern Baptist Church was like, reason why we can't listen to Karl Barth and, mm -hmm. and then went into the yeah. Ron Kirschbaum stuff and other things. And I'm like, but you're part of the Southern Baptist Church who it's now been come out that they were oh, like yeah, abusing in young women, mm -hmm. justifying this, calling those young women demonic and devils and stuff. But you're going to, you're going to remain part of that church. But like, I'm, so I'm not trying to say, you know, Bart's right. And there I'm trying to say you're making your excuse for, yes. um, and, and other than that, yeah, I don't know. There are times at, at its worst, I think, and I've come across this in a, in a few spots, there are times when you know this thing about Bart's personal life where you go, how much did it actually influence what he did? He wrote? write this, but because, was this an attempted defense? And I would say, I'm trying to be gracious about this in his own mind, because we've seen now from the letters how I he was, he, he was tortured this. over this. Yeah. But I mean, I think that and that's not saying, Oh, poor Carl with true, these two women. The, the, that's they're, they're, true of a lot of people though. I think there's a fallacy that is held up that people write in vacuums and they don't. Um, no, context is it really always, does matter. Time and place matters in all cases. And I think I think Bart would not wish to be put on a pedestal. 
No. Well, um, he's interesting that way, right? Because he he always warns people against when you like he warns people against what he calls the Bartians. He's like, I will never be a Bartian is basically the idea, right? Like, please don't do that to me. Because he was always saying, if he's written anything that's theologically true, it will remain open, like, and it should go further. Hmm. Um, that was a key thing in his life. So there was not, there's not this idea that like, I've discovered it now, you need to know what I yeah. know, and that's it, right? That there, So there is, it's a humility, but he was not afraid to I'm, get in arguments too. No, I don't right? think so. Um, I, I just, I felt like it was important to, to talk about that and to provide some context because most of the stuff that I've seen when I've done like quick Google searches or whatever are really polemic. You're finding these people like I said. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're... It pops up in Google pretty they quickly. They feel like they're unfair. And these are the people like who dedicated attacks. their life to who's the guy that died and then recently... Ravi Zacharias, Zacharias? Or oh, like that. Yeah. I love his work love Ravi Zacharias people say and then you're like no this was a person yeah, who, but wait, this was a troubling yeah. mixed up situation I would even you know the question would come out was how how or was this abusive or what does that mean I don't given know our, but those other situations like a Ravi Zacharias where we do know clearly yeah. like 100% yes. yeah. victimization and abuse and just like self interest mm-hmm. and all this is just messy and kind of sad and it, and yeah. you realize the frailty without of knowing someone. much more it's a messy relationship yeah the yeah. frailty of someone yeah. who's writing like such kind of lofty yeah. things and he- so i don't know what you do with that but what you do with no. that is probably going to be dependent upon whether you're interested in yeah and i mean right? i think that, that largely most of the people that that i've come across who have been very opposed to bart i think are more opposed to him from a theological reason um and use this as a nice convenient you know easy attack yeah if they know it it's funny because most people it. don't know it um, well again it's coming out more bart now. isn't you know the most popular no. thing when you know <laughs> there's there's a couple of great before we end there's a couple of great little for those who are interested um one is that somebody that we know, Daryl Guter, who does some mm-hmm. work through St. Andrew's Hall here in Vancouver or has done. And, and might actually be a BART scholar. He does translation He's a real for BART him. scholar. Yeah. He, he goes every year to the BART translation conference. So he's an actual there BART scholar. So he's translated a lot of the... Um, but he's also helped to translate a thing called BART in Conversation, which I think has three volumes now. And BART in Conversation is basically like BART More has... BART so Vancouver School of Theology has a podcast that we've helped with called Bruderholz. It's called Bruderholz because Bruderholz was the name of like a pub restaurant or like yeah where he would hold conversations where he would you know after he was a professor and you can't teach at the school anymore and all this stuff that's my understanding of it would go and like anybody could come and like talk to carl and have these and so things like that are transcribed in there like conversations or he's at this conference and then a bunch of people are meeting after and here's the talk and it's really really interesting some of those barden conversations we talked about christian uh, christian teats and and her book which is called carl bart a life yeah. in conflict which is not about the conflict doesn't mean the Nelly stuff. No. The conflict there means his theology is dialectic, which is, you know, this, not this is kind of or yeah. the, how. So she does a beautiful job of, that's a great book. Um, the most famous biography on Bard is by Eberhard Busch. Um, and that's, that gives kind of his life story. I don't think it goes into those con- controversies as well, though, though those people all are in there. Um, so in the end, you know, one of the things that we hold, like, uh, Bart's accused because of back to this um, awakening and conversion. What God has done for me, He's done for all. So then he's accused right away by the hardcore people. Universalists. It's the first thing Universalists. Universalists. So, you know, we write you off because you're universalist. And Bart had such a nice way of going, like, I don't, I don't really know what question you're asking me. Mm-hmm. Because what he's really saying is, you're insisting that I play upon your playing field. So even the tag universalist means. Well, and also you that have God this, does. And that God does. Mm-hmm. You have this who's in, who's out 
binary way of thinking yeah. that um so i don't but we always say kind of a value of rector's cupboard is like um we're not universalists we don't see because we because like we're saying that like bart we don't quite understand what that means um but we're really glad to be accused of being universalist mm-hmm. because that's like a because he in the end was known as a cheerful theologian his theology is filled with hope it oh, has yes. to do with the renewal of all things all things will be renewed in christ jesus is kind of the christian theology thinking about it so bart will say things like the christian has no reason to be anything other than unconditionally bright um he i've often thought if i was writing a thing on bart myself that although it's a depressing title but one of the tags i love he he says that like christians shouldn't go around like melancholy owls like, I love like, that quote. Like every, it's a great. <laughs> oh, the world is so bad and everything's terrible. And there's a hopeful, even playfulness to this. That so I think it's really it's being rediscovered as as much as we can be part of starting these conversations. And again, we'll go back to the modesty part. Yeah, like if if it's true, it'll then, prove itself. Then yeah, yeah, it'll yeah prove it doesn't itself. need to be hollered. Um, but for some people listening. Uh, there are other ways into Bart. We can include some of them. Mm-hmm. On, and, and Marty's book is... Well, is yeah, Dr. Folsom's book is really helpful for I that. I think that's a really good launching point. It is, but his book is... Like, I, I love the Bart stuff. It did, And I really like... I thought Dr. Folsom, our interaction with him has been fantastic. Mm-hmm. But for somebody like me who really was like, oh, I'm really happy to discover this Bart stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, my mind doesn't work in these really highly structured ways like Marty Folsom is <laughs> laying out. You know what, what I mean? Time? So for some people, this will work. For other people, they it might be that they discover a quote yeah. from sure. Karl Bart. Like, so whatever And it there's takes, lots right? of them. Um, yeah. And again, it's not so that we can elevate Bart. Like in a way, who cares? It doesn't matter. But it's it's that... I think this is a better way of understanding Christian faith. Well, it points, faith. It points my, to so much yeah. hope. And yeah. it points to so much, yeah. I, I think that, that I've really found um, there there is so much hope in Bart's work. And he talks about things like that, like he, he, is, he is optimistic in the sense that he thinks that like there is good in creation yeah. And that and that the was the intent good. and that the end, the is, end good is good and God is good yeah. and all those things. Yeah. And so it, but in no way does he deny that pain and sin and evil exist. Well, he just sees that they aren't evil in a way, evil in a way. He, he would say it's a non-thing. He, he Perhaps say, not the way that we a non-thing. were. No. You can't really talk about evil. It's only in, except, as opposed to. Yeah. Except like, in relation to. the Yeah. Good. Like he's, mm-hmm. he's not denying that, that life happens and that things are hard and that there is pain and struggle, but he does very much like insist on that. Like God is good. And he doesn't mean it in this like trite way. Like, but like God is good. The mm-hmm. end is good. Uh. I think given that the foundation of so much of what we talk about really centers around this theology, this theology. will not be the last time we have this conversation because <laughs> I think there's a lot more that could be said about Karl Well, Bart. and to know that all these um, things have been going on, right? These conferences yeah. and these and these academic There's so things. much more going if on. If it now is getting to people like us who are mostly talking about, you know, more stuff like on the ground, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How does this relate yeah. to the person who's struggling with church? Exactly. Who yeah. sees themselves as a Christian, but they just can't go to church. Yeah. Um, well, and they, I mean, and, how we can and translate the end of Dr. Folsom's that. book um, does have some of those really highly practical things like why church dogmatics matters, matters for, for mental health, mental health. And yeah. it, like, mm-hmm. so there are it's ways timely, in still. which it is, it is so applicable for the ground. And what's hard is you take this massive, there's no way there's massive thing. <laughs> yeah. And, 
And you, there needs to be some translation. I can tell you with certainty, I am not pulling any of those books off the shelf. He, at any he point. writes, there are long sentences. What did Dr. Folsom or Marty Folsom one, say? One, one and a half cent or one and a half pages. Well, it's because it's also in German. There's, sent, there's sentences that are one and a half pages long. Yeah. And, that's not, and that includes some words that are not super easy. It's not the easiest stuff to mm-hmm. read. But it, it is in a way fairly basic. Like academically, it's actually quite basic. Um, but it's written in a way that like I've had friends like, or, you know, cupboard master Ken Bell, he went and bought the dogmatics as well. And we, and then basically said like, I can't read <laughs> Like it's just, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it's, so I'm often happy you're to be able to bring resources. his work in whatever way that we can, um, to, to bring some of these concepts that I know I've personally mm-hmm. found so helpful and so encouraging and so good for reframing how I can understand God and then in light of that, how I understand myself and others. And I want to be able to take that and give that to other people who are really not going to pick this book off the shelf. No. It's just not going to happen. And that's okay. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Well, thank you guys so, very much. Enjoy our interview with Dr. Folsom. Check out the book. There's lots coming out because he does <laughs> one for every volume. So enjoy, guys. Well, we're very... Very happy today to have uh, Dr. Marty Folsom on the podcast. Very graciously has agreed to come on and help us uh, translate Bart a little bit. Uh, He has a PhD from the University of Otago and has taught biblical studies and theology in New Zealand and in several Seattle area schools over the last three decades. He's the author of the Face to Face trilogy and has published articles in a variety of journals, including the Scottish Journal of Theology and Crux. And today we have Dr. Folsom on to talk about the first of several volumes that he has uh, translating Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics. So it's called Church Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics for Everyone, The Doctrine of the Word of God, a step-by-step guide for beginners and pros. And this is volume one. So And it's and it's so use the word translate, which is kind of true, but it's not translating <laughs> like from one language to no, the no, other. No, no, no. Sorry. It's like a guide <laughs> yes. to Bart's like this whole vast church dogmatics. And uh, so thank you so thank much, you Dr. So Folsom. Much. It's a delight to be here. I kind of think of Rick Steves' tour guide yeah. to Europe and all that. <laughs> There's a tell new one. Tell me where to go. Tell me how to have the best time there. That it's really, it's a tour guide to get to some place that you know you want to go, but you're not sure how to have the best experience of it. So this is the hopeful key to that success. It's oh, so, it's amazing it's you mentioned Rick Steves because there's a new Netflix series. I haven't seen it yet, but I've seen it advertised, of course. Um, Eugene Levy is doing, I guess it's kind of a joke travel series called The Reluctant Traveler. And as you mentioned, Rick Steves, I'm like, it, it, the reluctant Bart reader or something. That, But it's not for that, because like, it's so daunting, right? Church dogmatics is what we're talking about. All these it's words, huge. all these volumes, all these chapters yeah. and Yeah, I mean, paragraphs. for anybody who's not maybe familiar with church dogmatics, uh, Todd has the, the many, many, many volumes on a shelf here, and they take up almost an entire shelf. It's, it's a daunting Yes, there's a lot to it. So maybe our first question is simply, why would anyone be interested in reading such a thing or even in taking up a summary like yours? Because some people look at the the sheer amount of work and go, well, a summary, how how would I get? So what difference might Bart's theological work make today? Why why this now? Yeah, well, I mean, the funny question when people say, you know, do you have any questions? You know, it's often, you know, what's the meaning of life? (laughs) is this big question. And in a sense, this series is the answer to that question. And the reason I want people Mm -hmm. to really understand the dogmatics is that 
Um, in the history of humanity, there has been this quest to find meaningful life, the nature of what it is that the, uh, the person of Jesus and those who have followed him have brought has been something that what one might call the good parts of humanity, the you know the educational system, the hospitals, and the life of a mm. church that actually cares for people, where the value of loving and being loved is the prominent theme. Um, the church dogmatics, at some level, is saying, you know, that is what Christianity is about, mm. but we've come up with all kinds of ways of dancing around that and doing things that serve humanity and not so well God. And so the meaning of life is to be restored in our connection with the God who has come to us in love so that the nature of our being, our thinking, our gathering as communities, our being with our neighbor, our sense of meaning in life finds its grounding in one who actually has an answer to that and actually is the answer to that. So the the famous thing, you know, Jesus is the answer. What was the question? Yeah. <laughs> Is really is really the, the the purpose of that. So it's a daunting book, but if you really get what Bart is saying, he's wanting to clarify for us the meaning of life based on the person who is acknowledged as creating life and giving it its meaning. Hmm. So it's worth engaging it because the answer is there. It's it's um I don't think I'm the only one. Uh, so I worked as a pastor for decades and kind of, and not, not that it was crisis of faith or anything like that, but this sense that I think some pastors can have some just uh, people in congregations can have a sense of the, of a disconnection between some of what they're hearing or some of what they've learned in the church and, and kind of this, um, I think it's, I, th- I think it's different than that or more meaningful or more. So I joined a BART reading group here in Vancouver, Richard Topping and mm. VST facilitating it a number of years ago. And that, totally changed or totally informed how I worked, how I wanted to set a course forward and continues to inform like when I'm doing a memorial service or doing a, th- this, this understanding, this way of seeing things is, is so rich and deep. It's not novel, right? It's not like creating something <laughs> new, um, some kind of new relevant type of thing. But so the way you speak that is, is just so fantastic. And, Mm-hmm. Yeah. The phrase, the phrase, the best way to be original is to go back to the origins. Yes. <laughs> For me, is a very rich yeah. way, and you just said that in a sense. But we're going back to the origin of the person of Christ, and to say, I mean, my, my short phrase for everything is, it's all about relationships. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so to say, the nature of theology is there's a God who exists in relationship who comes to us for the purpose of relationship and the life of the church and what it means to be persons is all to understand that out of the God who exists in relationship and comes to us for relationship. So anyway, the clarity of what you just said there is really attempting to get at that. Mm, no, that's it's it's great. And it's one of those things where while I was mostly, I, I come from, from uh, an evangelical background and didn't really hear about Karl Barth very much. And so no. to me, it felt really novel initially. And then realizing, you know, the time that he's writing in and the time that, you know, the 30s, 40s, 50s. And I'm like, oh, so this has been around for a very, very long time. I just never heard about it. And it's yeah. been really lovely for me um, to to learn about that. Um, I'd love if you could kind of give us a little bit of of an outline for for the structure of your book, and I'm supposing the books to come, um, like why you chose to make it that way, and how it kind of relates to the structure of church dogmatics, because you've kind of got like these like like space yeah, view definite structure, yeah, yeah, and and so tell us a little bit about how you chose to to be this guide. Yeah. 
So, I mean, when I chose to be this guide by having to wade through it all my, myself and going, wow, <laughs> this is work. hard. <laughs> it, it would be nice if somebody would, uh, would you know, help me to get organized. Um, in all my years of study, whenever I get the big picture, you know, if it's the big picture of the Old Testament or the New Testament or the big picture of church history, whenever I can get the big picture, I start being able to understand those things that have a place, not a fit. So I think just the value of once you, once you have the picture, then then the nature of getting the details start to bring into clarity what it is that the big picture is supposed to get for us. So, you know, we're told we're supposed to love, love the Lord God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when you just go, so, you know, who, who is this God and where is this God, then the work of what I want to do is to say, well, you know, let's let's just begin with the most basic thing we can. So to say the church dogmatics from outer space in one word is about as simple as you can get. So, you know, the word Jesus is the name of a person. And so everything I'm going to do is just going to be clarifying the way that the dogmatics plays out, making Jesus known as a person who engages us, because that's what the dogmatics want to do. And so once you've got that, this is always about that person, and then you get, I don't use this phrase a lot, but do as Dixit, that's God speaks, that the whole nature of everything that follows is because God speaks, we get to hear, we get to contemplate, we get to say, how do we respond to God's speech? And that the whole of the structure of it is just to keep living into that space of a God who has spoken who in the person of Jesus speaks about every element of what it means to understand both who God is as well as who we are in response. So all of the books have uh, three main sections. The first section is just that starting from a simple distance. The first one uses this mountain metaphor. The second one is going to use a music metaphor. Oh, okay. So you're going to hear like the creation theme oh, of great. Tolkien or Lewis, that there's uh... a music that becomes clearer and clearer until we get to the point of the symphony of God, which is the whole, it, and it's not that we just listen, we get to participate in the symphony of God as God gives himself to be known. We are drawn up into it to each bring the part that we are. The third one is hospitality. So the whole nature of a God who is hospitable creates the space for hospitality and then provides the meaning for what that hospitality will look like as a shared life together. And so the whole of it is going to be played out. I haven't I haven't quite gotten book four done yet, but it's going to be something around the nature of healing and restoring wow. the way of being for which we're intended to be. And the fifth volume is going to be something around becoming the family for which we are created. So I always will start with this simple vision of it and then keep moving it in and viewing the material of the of that volume of the dogmatics through that lens hmm. so that sure. there's there's in a sense a story that we're being invited into. I'm hearing more deeply. So, you know, first date, you know, what's your name? What do you do? Where do you come from? <laughs> Second date, what do you love to do? You know, I mean, there's a sense in which those first chapters are just moving into the knowing of what it is that's coming here so that you feel like, wow, I'm part of what's going on here. The second main section is basically summary of the dogmatics within each yeah. chapter, um, something just to help people like a tour guide to get, yeah. why does this matter? Why do you want to visit here? Why spend time with here? And do you recognize you may have thought this? These, this is a different way of thinking. And to let the person actually um, clarify by distinction, I, I sometimes say CBD, 
if you just say this is what I believe, it's very different from saying this is what I believe and I don't believe that anymore. It's like, oh, yeah. now I get it because I see what you're leaving behind. So the work of what I go through is really to get a sense of what is new and what does it ask of us to leave behind because it keeps us from really moving forward. And then the final section of each of the volumes are is an invitation to people who know Bart but live in different disciplines of so biblical studies, theology, pastoral mm-hmm. studies, the sciences, the arts, yeah. mental health, yeah. and to say, tell tell these readers, and this is really the and prose part at the end of there, yep. people who are professional but in different disciplines to say, this shouldn't just be locked into seminary yep. enclaves. Yeah. Um, this really should be starting a conversation to say, if God is the one that creates this universe, makes us to be a humanity who lives this community, it probably should impact every aspect of our living. And so this is just the beginning of that kind of conversation. And there will be others beyond the eight foundational ones that I have in the first three volumes. Actually, I have a ninth essayist in, in the next one. Wow. Each one of them beyond that, I add a few more um topics hmm. to that. Um, in volume five, uh, Jessica LePew has written a um, on basically what CD5 would have looked like and culture. So right. yeah. that's the, and what culture isn't like, in yeah. the earlier yeah. ones, but it will be in that one, right? Because to say that the redemption actually does include the redemption of culture. So anyway, that final section is really an invitation to create a huge and expanding community yeah. of people in conversation and believing that's what Bart really wanted. One of the it's one of the things that I, one of the many things that I really liked about this book, the volume one that I've read, is um, it's interesting because clearly you could you could write a lot of things from your own perspective. Here's what I think about this. Here's what I think about this. Here's what I think about this. But your book, you're really um, letting Bart speak. You're really clarifying what Bart has to say. It's not it's I'm not kind to, of yeah. your opinion on this or your I mean obviously the the way that you write things and what you choose to write will matter. But uh, you you do that so well and for somebody like me who has loved Bart stuff for for a number of years, uh, I just could really see that. Oh yeah, he's saying that. That's that. He's bringing that out. He's bringing that out. Um, so the question I have here is a bit of technical question. One of the things that I noted from uh, another podcast you were on was that you said the Carl Bart podcast. You said give give the small things that help you access the big things. Kind of how. So you've got that big view, like from outer space, but then you do such a nice job as well at articulating and filling in those details that help us to see the bigger things. But my technical question is this, because another thing that I loved about your book is even with illustrations and others, you, you outline, you, you are willing to address questions that some people would be embarrassed to ask. So you answer them for them. Um, like literally you have a, there's a chart or there's a, a uh, image an illustration of each of the volumes. It'd be like, it's on my shelf and the no. year that they're written. That's really, really helpful. Like this is in 1930 such, this is in, you know, this mm-hmm. year. That's really helpful for seeing where they're coming from. Uh, you also yeah. you also mention words like books and chapters and paragraphs. So let's start with that yeah. one paragraph because that's probably what is most different in people's understanding. And it did trip me up originally yeah, in reading Bart. It'd be, I'd be looking for a thing that I'd underlined and it's like it's in paragraphs such and such and such. And then I realized, oh, that's like, tons of pages it's not just a paragraph so tell us technically about church dogmatics yeah so 
So there's one set of the church dogmatics, and Bart envisioned it to be a work. Uh, it's not a systematic theology, because systematic theology begins with a system and then tries to unpack within it. So to say it's, church dogmatics is an investigation, mm. hmm. and the nature of the investigation requires that we begin by asking, you know, what is the nature of this investigation? Where are we going to be directed? And so the whole set is really trying to follow that out. So there are four volumes that were published, and that those are um, indicated by different colors as they sit there on the shelf, as well as 3D your CD 3.1, 3.2, 3.3, 3.4, those yeah. are all in volume three. So the volumes each represent um, major subject areas. So the first volume was, yep, here's what our task is. Let's talk about that. Volume two is, here's the God we're going to be talking about, the doctrine of God, as God's given God's self to be known. And then there are three volumes, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of reconciliation, and the doctrine of redemption that form for Bart the major themes of what it is that God's doing in the world. God creates the world. When the world um, chooses other than God, God comes to bring that world back, reconciliation. And then God comes to bring the hope and the living within that world. Even though humanity um, isn't following, God redeems and makes whole by virtue of what he does in making the family of God complete and for the world to share what he's doing. So there are these huge major themes of the work that God is doing in the world that forms the volumes. So there are 13 books that sit on the shelf. That's what's taking up all that room on yourself there, are the 13 <laughs> volumes. Um, and again, I don't know if, do you have the Christian life there also? Uh, no. On your shelf? No. So the Christian life is, um, it is part of what would have been oh, that's right. uh, volume four as well. And so I will be including that also in the fourth volume of, what, of my work, because it really is continuing the work of what it is that the church dogmatics have. And then, of course, um, Bart died before he could write Volume 5, mm -hmm. but he left clues along the way. So I'm going to be writing Volume 5. So I'm going to add, in a sense, to yourself. Oh, there you go. That's okay. wonderful. I will have to make some room. <laughs> we can make room. I'll move he, my, he gave me clues, and people said, you know, why didn't you write this? He says, well, I left enough clues. You should, you should be able to figure it out. So I'm just I'm doing the work of what it is that he gave all those, all those clues and bringing them together, as well as other works that focus on the topics of what would have been there. Um, this year, Erdman's will also be releasing Volume 2 of the Göttingen Dogmatics, which mm. Volume 1, this, all this has been translated. That also will have clues to what his um, doctrine of um, eschatology, yep. the Holy Spirit, and so forth there. So I will also be borrowing from that to create more on the shelf. So... <laughs> To say those 13 books, we're going to end up with, I'm not sure, I mean, mine's just adding one book, but it will have implied that there would be at least one more right. there, if not maybe three, because he did talk about three more chapters that would be added. So within, within that, I use the word chapters there. Yep. So there is the structure of logic within these volumes that he had a chapter that don't follow exactly either the volumes or the individual books. And so you will come across the book, you know, the, you know, there's this chapter, and so there are 17 of those chapters to which we'll be adding three chapters for volume um, three. And so to say, in this case, Bert is attempting to do what you would call a normal table of contents in a sense. You know, these are the subject issues within the overall structure that I want to, to unpack. And so 
the nature of that is that often people read them and don't even know there are chapters that are there. Mm. So I've attempted to make it overt mm-hmm. because in a sense, it's the logic of yeah. the chapters. I mean, if, if I always go to you know table of contents, yeah. okay, there's the flow. Yeah. This gives you that. So that's there. Then there are these, what are called paragraphs. Yeah. So a paragraph for most people just means one short little thought yeah. that's yeah. there. And in, I attempted to make my paragraphs not longer than yes. you know, three sentences within the book because I want them just to be short and punchy. Yes. And, but a paragraph for Bart can be up to 200 pages long. <laughs> and so to say if we have chapters, if we have chapters, in the German, some of his sentences uh, can be a page and a half long, just so yeah. you know that too. I mean, the German has a lot of complexity to it. The, uh, the nature of what we call a paragraph might be better called a section. Yes, very They're much. called paragraphs, so I call them paragraphs because all of oh, the other terminology. Call them paragraphs. Yeah. But I probably would have called them sections yeah. within the chapters. There are within, all except for, I think, one, um, one paragraph. is There's only one that doesn't have subsections. And so those are also listed right in there. the beginning of each. You'll see them in each chapter. The subsections can be quite quite important as well. So yeah. I I definitely I mean I find people quite often, you know, saying paragraph yeah. fifty one yeah. um, section three or something like that. And okay. so it those are those are often people are going to those, you know, body and soul is, you know, in three D two is gonna be an important little subsection within it because it talks about the nature of body and soul and spirit. But anyway, so it's worth yeah, it's worth something. noting. I I didn't want to do the whole thing of subsections because it would have taken up almost a whole other book just to list yeah. those and do <laughs> summaries of those. So, um, yeah, I do the, like uh, how you it it is cle- very clear in your book, even for somebody like me who has some familiarity with church dogmatics, the way you lay it out makes these chapters and sections and such much more clear mm-hmm. than yeah. Good. I just want to get the flow. In some cases, in these first seven chapters, it just it literally is just moves you one step at a time closer and closer That's right. within things that are they're there. You can go and find them. And in fact, Logos Bible Software has published his book and they've hyperlinked all of these things. So you actually can click oh, and in these first click you right there. So that's a really helpful, helpful kind of thing. Wonderful. But it has a level of connection. That's that that was what I was aiming for. Yeah. Connect to the real stuff so people can find it. Yeah, so I before we kind of get into some of like the actual, I guess, meat of the book, yeah. I'd love if you could uh, tell us a little bit about literally the words church and dogmatics. Like they're, they're words that are- Not are the most a, popular words. No, they're a little loaded sometimes. Um, and, and, you know, coming from, from less of an academic perspective, um, it, it's something that, you know- I'd love if we could kind of set some context around those words so that people can understand what they're meant to be or what Bart meant them to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. So when we use the word church, we are in the first instance talking about a community who live out of the life of a person named Jesus, who's the head of that community. So the church that Bart envisions here is the community of those people who have heard Jesus address them, who gather around who he is, who he's witnessed to by that book called the Bible, which is a word that points to him. And in their gathering together, they acknowledge that it's about Jesus and about hearing his word, the nature of the building, the nature of the structure of 
how that denomination or that particular community gathers are not as much the interest of what it is that he wants to build. The practices of communion and baptism, the preaching of the word, those things are all of interest to him insofar as they keep us pointing to the person of Christ and not ourselves. So to say church means a community of people who, by virtue of being connected to the person of Jesus who reveals the Father and the Spirit, take on a character that is shaped and formed by the person who is addressing us and not by our own ways of trying to structure, manage, and control. And much of the work of the church dogmatics is to show all the ways that we get off track hmm. with the intention of bringing us back to the center from whom we have the life we are intended to have with the God who has loved us. The word dogmatics, which often is seen as somebody who is highly opinionated, things mm -hmm. that are set in stone, it would be better to say dogmatics is a clarifying conversation. Dogmatics says, you know, people have said this. Um, Jesus has said this in the Bible. Calvin has said this. Um, Schleimacher has said this. You know, let's just think through all of these claims and let's ask, you know, what, what things miss the point? And what things bring us back to really listening to the person of Christ so that the life that we live in response is true to the person, not some abstract sense of truth, not some system of logic, but really true in relation to the one who our investigation is taking us to. And so that our relation in the end is truly to him and not just um, humanly created systems that try and get to him scaffolding you know so much mm -hmm. of theology is just scaffolding to try and get to mm -hmm. god and he says let's just acknowledge the scaffolding and even that people may have had a good reason for putting in there but let's not keep climbing the scaffolding and think it's the real thing that's yeah. well said the uh yeah i mean just i i forget the kind of loaded meaning that people can carry of church and dogmatics when I read Bart, because it's so, it's so kind of, it's, it's expansive and opening up this view rather than closing. It doesn't, it doesn't feel in that negative way, dogmatic, the way that people think of. Although at, you at might, all. one yeah. might say that Karl Bart was highly opinionated. Well, I think he was probably <laughs> highly opinionated from what, but uh, I, there's well, another word. Of an opinion, I mean, an opinion I mean, to say the, the beginning of the dogmatics um, is that this is a scientific investigation to clarify our speaking right. And so to say, in the end, we, we hold, you can call them opinions, or you can say, this is the best thing we can say at this point. Hmm. And you're That's not good. quite holding as an opinion. You're being part of a community that says, I think that when we say God, we need to, we need to say that God in the person of Jesus and that this Jesus loves us. He's not just watching us or mad at us. Yeah. So you could say that's an opinion, or you could say, well, so far that's the best that we can say. But when you say love, what do you mean? And then you say, well, Jesus loves by giving himself. So, And so you could call each of those an opinion, or, or you could say it's the state of the conversation, aiming at a clarity and always open to being revised as is necessary. And if that's what we mean by Bart having an opinion, yeah. okay, I'm fine with that. But that's I think fantastic. the word opinion actually gets in the way ah. of saying it's all part of a clarifying conversation that has the humility to say, let's keep improving on this, but this is what I found so far. That's yeah. so good. He, I think it was in, um, I think it's called Evangelical Theology, right? Which is a series of talks he gave that was, so you would know that well, that he, he talks about that, right? That he, where, yeah, yeah it is. I think it's in there that where he's saying, this enterprise needs to keep going. 
it, it, it always is moving and headed forward. And there's another word you used near the beginning that I really liked. Um, I'm probably saying it wrong. It's um, prolegomena. Pro, pro, prolegomena, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so now we're uh, getting ready for an adventure. It's such a beautiful concept. So it's near <laughs> the end of those first seven chapters, I think, if I'm recalling correctly. And you have the, the metaphor of a mountain, almost like a mountain trek. And my sense of what you were using the word to mean is get ready now to see some things that that you haven't seen before and that's right is is that kind of a generally what you're and you don't even know what you're going to see but i mean i did a i did a week hike in the uh, british columbia coastal range Hmm. and so before we went we got a list of equipment that we would need and you don't know why you're going to need all these things so you know a sleeping bag um, you're going to need a sleeping bag, but you don't know how warm of a sleeping bag you need. And so they say, okay, you know, this needs to be, keep you warm up to negative 30. Really? Okay. I, you know, never would have thought of that, but so the nature of prolegomena, it's the getting you ready for the adventure that you have no idea what's going to be there, but somebody has been there before yeah. and they're going to help you to have the equipment that you need to be able to make this journey and to enjoy it the whole way. And they'll help you to think of things that you might not even even think of um, that are going to make that journey successful. And you may need a certain size of backpack, and you may say, well, I don't need that big of a backpack. I don't have that much stuff. It's like, yeah, but you're carrying one-eighth of the food for the week, too. And so you need to be carrying your part of the community's food. Oh, okay. So there's this broader vision that says we need to get you ready to be part of a community for this adventure and to be ready to see the things you otherwise wouldn't have seen if you didn't have guides to take you there. That's So with that in mind, yes, we no, kind of start the we right kind of start the journey to to even <laughs> touch down some some of the many quotes that we pulled out having read yeah. your book. I mean, I think we pulled we pulled out a lot and yeah. we certainly won't get to them all we unfortunately. Won't get to them all. Um, but I, I'd love if we could start uh, like quite early in the book. It's like on page 49 for anyone who's taking notes here um, or wishes to reference back to this when they buy the book. Um, you got, we preach as servants, never as those lording authority over others. And and in, in the Carl Bart podcast that, that you were on recently, you spoke about the distinction that you make in teaching between talking about God and letting God speak. Does that relate to this quote here that we preach as servants, never as those lording authority over others? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, one of the one of the biggest problems of evangelical Christianity is that we're f- afraid that we're going to be wrong or we're afraid that people are going to think something of us. You know, will you pray for us today? Yeah, I'm not really that good of a prayer. You know, Would you be willing to preach this today? Yeah, I'm not. I mean, there's a fear thing. So we give this authority to somebody who we think is trained and they they become a person who becomes the authority in the church. But if they're the authority, then they, in a sense, become the interpreters of all of this. Mm-hmm. And so, so to say, church, as Bart wants to define it, Jesus is the Lord. He's the authority. And so the nature of what somebody should be doing in the church is not establishing themselves as authority. There should be a profound sense of humility, wonder. And being on the journey themselves that says, you know, this is what I've discovered so far. You know, let's keep journeying together and let's talk about, you know, your life and, you know, where is Jesus showing up and not showing up? I mean, most people think of Jesus showing up on Sunday when we get to church. But the question, if we're really going with Bart, there's this Jesus who's with us every step of the way in the journey. 
Mm-hmm. And so if you go on Sunday to somebody who's the authority, that means you're not under authority the, the rest of the week. And really, it's a temporary authority on Sunday instead of learning that that one who is the lordly lover of our souls, who's calling us to freely live within that love and extend it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, from the time you wake up till the time you go to sleep and to rest in the night, knowing that there is one who loves us and cares for us. That if we're living under that lordly loving authority, that it begins to shape our whole life. And it isn't as temporary and location tied and all those other things. So that when, when we create the authority in something other than in Jesus himself, we're doing all that Bard is standing against through the whole dogmatics. And that's humans that we can hold, touch, and grab onto, taking precedence over the one who is Lord over all of it. And we come, become dependent on what we can touch and feel and see and not hearing the one who is speaking at all times. So then for, for Bart, then when you talk about the difference between talking about God and letting God speak, do you see the role as of the preacher of, of that being that conduit that not speaking about God, but that hopefully in, I would think the most, the, the best sense of the word that God speaks through that yeah. person. So the, the, the word theology, I mean, the first day of theology, theology one, what does theology mean? Talk about God. That's what we say, right? Mm-hmm. Talk about God. So God becomes a silent object in the room or out there or something who we talk about. So in one single move, we've made God distant, yeah. silent, and we become the people speaking about this God who has no ability to speak to us. So if we say, Theology is letting God speak. And we say, okay, we're, we're here today. What has Jesus said about himself? What has he said about his father? Jesus, what do you have to say to us about who you are that we can actually begin to see who you are in relationship? I mean, this is the difference between a date that just talks about themselves or you talk about them or something versus <laughs> like a conversation, right? Those horrific, it's like, that was a date? Okay. so That was church? So if, yeah. if people are asked the question, you know, so so what is Jesus saying to you today? Most will say, well, I don't know. Or, well, I read, I read this Bible verse, and, you know, it says he's gracious and all that. It's like, okay, that's talking about him. But what did he say to you today? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I want people to say, you know, Jesus said to me, to me today, you know, I'm here for you. I'm with you. I see your day has some things in it that you're worried and concerned about. And I want you to know I'm going to be with you through them. My presence will never leave you. And um, I can see that it's a storm. And I want you to know I know about storms. And I'm not going to make the storm go away. But there's life on the far side of the storm. And I'm going to be there in that too. I want them to learn to hear the voice of Jesus, right? And I want their theology to inform that. And I want them to have a sense that the, the Father is their father, that the Abba of Jesus is not one that we just cry out Abba Father to begin something and then say, see you later, Abba. But that if I say to people, so, you know, so where is the Abba for you today? They, that I would want them to say, the Abba is embracing me in his life and loving me in such a way that I can go this through this day, even though there are going to be humans that I have a challenge with, um, I know that I am one beloved of the Abba of Jesus mm-hmm. and that that is a constant presence for me. And so now now we're letting Jesus reveal this speaking, present, 
um, God, who is it, all of that's informed in the content of that speech is coming from what Jesus has said and is saying in our present moment. So the nature of a church that preaches the word, if we just say, you know, take this Christian principle and go live your marriage that way, mm-hmm. um, we've just left Jesus out of the mm-hmm. equation. We've, quote unquote, empowered, and unfortunately in evangelicals, we've empowered the husband to be yeah. the head of the family and they take that authority and become controlling. And I've literally sat in counseling with couples and the man, you know, said, well, God's given me the authority over this family. And I said, so what if, what if the Jesus who is present is calling you and all those to say, listen to them, hmm. empower them, be the one who brings my love to each one of them so that they can be who I've made them to be as part of this family and part of this community and to be all that I want to do and be through them. And usually the husband in that will say, I don't think I want to do that. Well, that's that's just, in, you know, not wanting to give up the control, the authority yeah. of what it means to live under the Lordship of Jesus. Do I want do I want husbands to be authoritative over their families only insofar as they minister and empower their family to be all they can be? Yeah, so. So it's, yeah it's a reconceptualization of of some of those assumptions. Well, the nature of authority, yeah. uh, which is... And, and all that would be true of a pastor, too. Yeah. I never want to be a pastor outside of how do I function in such a way that every person in this congregation is becoming all they can be, not just as individuals, but as part of this community? Yeah. The, it, when you mention listening, hearing, letting God speak, and then you uh, speak about what we may hear, uh, Jesus saying... I know storms and I know this, these kinds of comforting words you mentioned. Yep. Um, this is chapter 18. Do you have it noted? Um, page 89. Cause page 89. Uh, God, and God as, as reconciler, this concept where we start that Jesus is Lord. Uh, this must, this we must agree on with the early church, just that concept alone. And I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, bad ideas of authority and such. Jesus is Lord in our culture, or for many people who've grown up with a particular brand expression of Christian faith, Jesus is Lord yeah. is kind of comes across as aggressive or condemning. Mm-hmm. Um, and But then you mentioned that, uh, but we cannot, we cannot deduce that Jesus is Lord. It's his givenness. Um, uh, it's his givenness must be affirmed. And then later on, you say that we reveal and then interpret Jesus. So tell us about this kind of uh, Jesus is Lord and how that is true, not because we make it true. Like we don't make him Lord. And what the difference is in in seeing that as opposed to kind of thinking that we make that happen. Yeah. Well, the word true can be a problematic word. Mm. If truth is something that we build out of Greek philosophical concepts, you know, is this really true? Who gets to be the one that decides it's true? Um, Parker Palmer in his book, Mm. To Know As We Are Known, um, talks about truth as being true to one another, and in this case, being true to the person of Jesus as he's revealed in Scripture. So to say, how does Jesus function as Lord in Scripture? Well, he has no barriers that keep him from loving everyone, including a woman caught in the act of adultery, including people who everyone else in the community hates and would love to um, get rid of. He just has this fearless, courageous way of being loving of people, and that's an exercise of his lordship. Hmm. That's so so to say the nature of not being lord is that we're afraid. If he was afraid all the time, 
which unfortunately many of our leaders are yes are afraid of what we're going to lose. We're afraid of how we're going to be perceived, and that fear means you're giving away the proper authority in the in the form that Jesus lives it. So, the nature of when fear comes into play, we're all concerned about ourselves and protecting ourselves. And I often say the day a great movement of God um, comes to the point where people say, you know, I love what's happening here. You know, I'm afraid we're going to lose this. Let's set up leaders or principals, yeah. principals or rulers within here to make sure we keep it going. That day, fear has been it's downloaded over. as yeah. a virus and mm. something begins to collapse. And the Lordship of Christ is the one who sets us free, who by his spirit intends to do creative things through us, has been asked to step aside. So the, the, the rest of the phrase after the Lord is Jesus, the Lord who is the servant and the servant who is the Lord, to recognize the servant ministry of Jesus and that he serves both his father in the living out of love. God demonstrates his love for us and while we're yet sinners, Christ dies for us. And he also serves us as those who need to understand love because it isn't natural to our way of mm. being. Fear is the dominant motif of the human way of being. And I could go on for hours on that yeah. one, but to say perfect love casts out fear is to say that is the you know a major theme of of all of the gospel is that there is a perfect love that casts out the fear that is the norm of our life. We want to survive and look good and all that, and fear is always going to be processing how how we look at life. And so for the nature of Jesus as Lord to relieve us of our fear is to bring us into the freedom that love enables to happen. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's, I really resonate with how you answer that. And even just like, so the initial Jesus is Lord, because many times, not, not all, right? But many times I've heard that it, does seem to have come from a place of fear more than like Jesus is Lord and you better damn well get with the program, you terrible church or you terrible world. Um, because, yeah. because you're going to find it out one day, one way or the other, you know, the, and that's, there's so much fear in that. A quote that you have on, well, that we, I pulled out from page 108 is Jesus is revealed and then interpreted. We must keep this in order in our investigation. Otherwise our interpretations will usurp and cast a shadow over Jesus revelation that somehow we can, I think there's there's something I remember this in Bart, to, to quote Bart, that we, he says something along the lines of, we better be careful about about uh, taking our anxieties like and our fears and putting them onto Jesus uh, as if this is kind of who he is. It's it so well yeah. said, so thank you so much. That's, yeah. And the word careful there can't be heard as a fearful careful. Yeah. It's the carefulness of a mother who sees the children crossing the street and is careful to make sure that they have the loving support to make it across the street without getting hurt, right? So there is Very a kind gracious. of carefulness that is motivated by love. And we haven't learned well the distinction. Very gracious, mm. yeah. No, I, I'm, yeah, I feel like I'm like having like yeah. a wonderful seminar <laughs> You're going to go right read now. Bart now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'd love if you could uh, extrapolate a little bit on um, something that you touched on, on the concept of natural theology. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I know that Bart is not a fan, uh, but for those of our listeners who maybe don't know what natural theology is or why Bart may be opposed to it, um, could you, could you um, yeah, inform us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, well, this is a big one, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah. it's one that Bart gets a lot of pushback on. So the assumption of natural theology is that we should be able to, with our natural abilities, look at the natural world 
and learn something about God. And people love to think about sunsets and flowers in the spring mm-hmm. and say, oh, this is beautiful. You know, God has made this. You know, I, I believe in that God. But if we follow that out, then that is to say the things that I find beautiful are the things that God must find beautiful. And what does God end up looking like? Me. He ends up looking like what I find beautiful like and like me. Exactly. <laughs> now, it's also possible for people to do things like saying, Well, it looks to me like God has made men stronger than women. Therefore, God must have made men to rule over women. And they're looking at the nature of things and coming up with a theology. And it's like, okay, we can take that with gender. Can we take that with race where people say, it looks like God has made this race to be in power over these other Mm -hmm. races. Therefore, God must have made it that way. Suddenly Mm -hmm. recognize there's this whole dark side once we begin working out of our natural judgments or evaluations of the way we think the world should work. And in the end, they all just end up looking like the worldview of the person who's making those evaluations. And so Bart is just saying, if we're going to do something that is really God as the one who we come, want to come to know, then we need to listen to God. Only God can really give us God. And all of these other ways of judging the world have a natural default as human interpretations to always just interpret the world, what it means to be human, even our conscience. You know, that doesn't seem right to me. Well, where did that seeming right Mm -hmm. to me come from, the common sense? Well, it comes from the communities in which we live, which may be very, you know, racist and prejudiced in some form of way, and it all gets downloaded into our form of Christianity, and nobody's calling it out and saying, you know, that doesn't really look like, feel like, sound like the Jesus who says, in Christ there's neither male or, well, I, Jesus didn't say that, Paul did, oh, yeah. about Jesus, in Christ there's neither male or female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, that there is a doing away with all those choices on behalf of humanity and saying, I don't, I'm not going to prejudge or be prejudiced in valuing any of those. And so in dealing with natural theology, which takes on virtually every section of the church dogmatics, there might be another Mm -hmm. name for it, but it's just all the ways humans read. So Jesus is the elect one on our behalf. What do humans do? We're going to have an elect one, and we're going to have the third kingdom of God come, Mm -hmm. which happens to be called Third Reich. Mm -hmm. Right? And we're going to have the leader who's going to lead us into a new era of freedom as as the people of God, and and people are going, oh yeah, it's the people of God, it's the kingdom coming in our time. And they're blind, Bart's saying, because Fuhrer means Lord, they're calling one Lord who isn't the Lord, and from there everything else crumbles Mm -hmm. and falls apart, because they haven't understood a proper theology of who is Lord, and what it would look like for any kind of kingdom to function in a way that's true to that, that Lord. So natural theology for Karl Barth, is the human starting with somewhere other than God and wanting to put that onto God as though it was God, when in fact it is a human evaluation mm-hmm. serving a human agenda. So, And so, the, the other day, sorry, just one more thing. The, um, I was sitting with somebody who's actually, you know, running a community dealing with eco-theology, so, you know, the natural mm-hmm. world's very important. He says, you know, so what do you, you, know, what do you say about, about this? Because, you know, I'm dealing with the natural world. And there was a picture sitting to the right. So I said, this picture sitting here, we could just start talking about what this picture means, why it's here, who did it. 
and we come up with all kinds of things that may or may not be true. But yeah. if I said, I want to know the artist who made this, why they chose this particular scene, the story of why it's made, then I, I would gain an understanding of this piece of art that's true to the piece of art. And if somebody uses this art to promote something that's contrary to what right. this artist wanted, then we would be really getting into what Bart's wanting to do. I want to understand the arts, the artists, the intention and all that so that I can get a full appreciation of what's going on here, especially if the artist wanted to say something through it, which I talked to an art professor at Seattle Pacific once who said, yeah, artists do have voices. They don't always want to confess it. And the phrase, art is whatever you make it, that is a form of natural theology, right? Yeah, that's, that's a good what? metaphor. You can enjoy art, I suppose, for the beauty of a picture of a mountain, but you're not really seeing the art for what the artist made it for. And so the church dogmatics and natural theology is an ongoing engagement with natural theology that some places is more overt than others, but it is always saying, let's not take the imitations, the facades that pretend to be the real thing. Let's always you know, acknowledge why they're there and that people want good things maybe, but that they don't go in good directions and that really living in light of the truthfulness of who Jesus is, is what's going to get us the blessings of what it means to be God's people in God's world. And then guess what? We get to love God's world and God's people mm. in ways that are appropriate to that. So we don't stop loving the natural world. We just love it as God's world and take care of it as mm. such. Mm -hmm. So if I'm understanding that correctly is it's almost like that that lens has been reversed that that we don't use creation to view god but we use god to view creation is that kind of what what no, you're getting no. to exactly and i mean to say if if people are going to choose something out of creation that they want to hold as their beginning point you know it's like well it may be sunsets or it may be you know the the highest moment in the act of sex that uh, they go you know God must be like this. And what do they do? They end up making that the starting point for yeah. the view of God that they have. And so God becomes all about that thing that they value the most. Mm. And so, so the lens of the human is naturally inclined to what serves me. And so Bart is just saying, if, if it is what serves me, that it's no longer theology. Yeah. We could call it, you know, what humans want, you know, we, but it's not even anthropology in a sense. It's not really the study of the human with any, any kind of theological mm. import. So if we're going to do theology, he's going to say, all of the world that God creates, God cares about. This is going to be in, in the doctrine of creation. But if we don't understand it through what it is that God is doing and creating us and to live within this created world, then we're not going to understand the intention of God mm. for the working of those things out. And our intentions will actually usurp and set God's intentions aside. That's, and so I think that's kind of you were saying it's flipping the lens. Mm -hmm. it, it is literally yep. flipping everything. Yep. So we get the perspective within the intention of what is revealed by the living God in the person of Jesus with an intention that it would come and live like Jesus did every day, talking to real people and metaphors of the natural world yeah. get used because it's all working within God's intention for the natural world. Yeah. But it's not doing the parables are not natural theology. One of what? one of Richard Topping at VST, one of his favorite. So he was he was facilitating this reading group when I first was oh, getting into Bart. Yeah, that's where I'm going. and one of his favorite sayings from Bart is building on what you're saying here is theology before anthropology. Right, that there is this sense of the one of the so in the twenty fourth chapter, chapter twenty four, the revelation of God as the abolition of religion. 
Um, now, some of the people who listen to us and follow us, that those words, the abolition of religion, they're like, oh, that's interesting. Um, it, one of the things I so appreciate about Bart and that opened up this kind of expansiveness for me is when he talks about, you know, the Bible, I mean this, not this, or the Word of God, I should say. When he talks about belief and unbelief, when he talks about sin, like there's even his concept of sin is very different than some understandings. And, um, yeah. and in this section it seems to me you're speaking a lot about belief and unbelief that that what what unbelief is as opposed to belief and unbelief being like you know belief is inside the church and unbelief is outside the church here there is like what does unbelief look like inside the church how do we you know as well as outside um and you so pulling out a quote page 146 the problem of religion is that it makes it appear that we have a viable choice to either listen to the revelation of God as it comes to us, or we may choose some other way to make claims, and then this to stand out. True religion listens, false religion walks away to self-create. That it is possible that much of what we see in religious settings, in church settings, is actually unbelief, because it's a lot of talking, talking and talking yeah. and talking, and not listening. Uh, page 149, you have humans do not believe in God, or they would listen. Instead, they talk. So anyway, I'm just kind of providing this runway for you to tell us about that chapter of your book. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's Bart's chapter. I'm just reflecting on it and yeah. trying to bring it into, you know, how do we function in the life of the church today? So the, uh, the whole question about listening, to say that the, the world that we live in, and the definition of science for most people is to observe. You mean observation. So I stand back. I see the world as an object, and then I start drawing my conclusions based on my observation. And if we do this to another person, I could say, oh, yeah, that Todd guy. You know, I've watched him, and I could start listing all the things that I observed without listening to any of your words. In fact, I could just hear your words but not listen to mm. them. And just, I could, you know, and I could make up something that would be based on everything that I observed selected out, but they would be missing you if I didn't listen to you. And I could not see you. I could just listen to your voice and actually get the words. And when you said something, it's like, you use this word, tell me what you mean by that. And I would be listening and inviting mm. the conversation. So now it's really you who I'm wanting to know instead of just drawing conclusions um, based on my observations and selecting words and making them say what I think that they might say and ending up to create something that mm. that only is a, a warped shadow of you, but in a sense has nothing really to do with you other than there's a form of something there, but no substance. That almost sounds biblical, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and that's what people do with Jesus, right? Yeah. They go to church to make their life and their kid's life better. I want my kid to go to Sunday school so he'll end, he or she will end up being a good kid. It's like, okay, so you've got this agenda of the good kid, and you think going to Sunday school is going to somehow end up making this idol of a good kid who's probably going to be very self-focused, success-oriented by modern definitions, yeah. postmodern yeah. definitions, um, you know, all of this. And it's like, I think that what the core you're putting into the machine is not going to give you what you want <laughs> coming out the other end. Right? You're, you're doing this little thing that is not going to do the same thing as what it means to really meet somebody and to say, you know, you're five years old now, your grandpa and grandma live on the other side of the country. We haven't been able to go see them, but today we're going to go 
and be with them. And, and we're going to spend mm. a month with them because we want you to know who this person is. So the nature of all of, of the talk about grandma and grandpa before you go, that's just religion if there's no real engagement. And it may or may not look like them. But when you actually go and spend time and you you end up in a dynamic relationship, hopefully grandma and grandpa are good people who love you. But um, yeah. in, for, this, for the purpose of this metaphor, at the end of that, you no longer need to kind of say, you know, grandma and grandpa far away, um, who, who you know love you, to say grandma and grandpa, because you've spent this month of being loved and learning who they are, yeah. to say grandma and grandpa already means, oh, those All people those who love me, who are my family, who I feel embraced mm -hmm. by them, who I know want to be with me whenever possible. All of that is is included in that. And to say the nature of uh, religion, the linking of our lives, the linking has happened in the time spent together, the hearing, the embrace, mm. the sharing of eating meals together, of having the conversations, of knowing the interests and all those things. So what one might call true religion is the formed life together, of being together, of hearing each other's hearts and acting in ways that are appropriate to that. So that there's something authentic. When a bunch of people walk in a room and just look for what am I going to get out of this? Yeah. The setup is already problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Because the person comes just bringing a straw and nobody's bringing a milkshake. Right. <laughs> if everybody brings something to Did the Did you just taste, get that now? Did that just come to your mind now? That metaphor? Uh, I've, I've used that before. Okay. It's yeah. good. Because it's like really it. good. Yeah. <laughs> I just picture. But it's it so what people—it's what people do. I can't remember whose image it is, but the, the picture of heaven and hell are both just the same. Um, but it, but in um, in heaven, well, I have, they have these huge long um, forks and spoons, and oh, the yeah. food is I've heard the same in yeah. bo on both tables. But in in hell, nobody can get the, the yeah. Spooks, yeah, forks. Yeah, I've seen spoons. that before. In heaven, everybody is using them to feed one another. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I'm, this seems to to go back to what you were talking about. That for for Bart, everything is is relational. And so, if if Jesus is like the space view of of church dogmatics, yep. that is always then then everything that comes out of that is is through that relational lens. Then that's right. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, and book one, it's one word, Jesus. Book two is two words because it's CD two, right? And it's living word. Yeah, mm. right. CD two, and in, in two words, living word. So all of it is the God who speaks living word, so that we will be able to hear and enter into everything that we're mm. talking about here. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think this is in in your first book, but I think it it goes back to what you were talking about with the living word. Um. Well, maybe not actually. Maybe it's it's our interpretation of the 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 term word in in many churches is equated with the Bible. And my my understanding is that maybe that would not be how Bart would define it. Um that that his concept uh you've you've got on page um one seventy five, like the Bible is a witness to revelation, not revelation itself. And yeah. if you if you could speak to that a little bit, because I mean I know that in That's in many church for, communities, yeah. like the the Bible is viewed as a form of revelation, but that's yeah. not kind of how Bart sees it, is it? Well, certainly not the Bible in and of itself. Yeah. And so just to say, the word, the word, and the word, there are three 
moments of the word. And if you take any one of them out, the other two collapse. And so to say the grounding of the revelation of God is the living word who is Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's a living mm-hmm. person, right? So the word essentially in scripture is going to be a living word. He is the one who has authority um, in the life of the church, over the church. He has the authority in the meaningfulness of what it is that he says to the church and to the world. So he is the grounding where authority lies. And the nature of what we call the written word, the Bible, is that it is that document that witnesses who mm-hmm. were there with Jesus or leading up to Jesus um, wrote to point to him. And so in the same way that a map is not the land that is there, but you know that it allows you to move within what is there. Um, does, does a map have authority? Well, it only has authority insofar as you're actually in that part of the land. I mean, if you're looking at a map of Mount Rainier and trying to go through the, the BC coastal range, yeah, yeah. Um, you've, got, you've got the wrong map <laughs> for that piece of land, right? So to say the Bible is that document that allows us to get a sense of who is this God? What is this God doing in the world? What does it mean for us to be invited into the history of the life that he has intended, is intending, and continues to intend for us as the one who goes forward? So it has a kind of, a, it has a derivative authority mm-hmm. insofar as mm-hmm. it's connecting with the one who is the true authority. And then the nature of what it is that the church does when it preaches the word, when you give a sermon, you are adding interpretive context in the same way that when you take a map, you say, let's go on this trail to this lake, or let's go whitewater rafting on this river. There's somebody who has a sense of finding their way around the map and how we live within the real place, right? Mm. The, the actual thing that's there. And so if we if we preach the word and it's not, if we're off the map, <laughs> Yeah. Then you know we're we're actually not engaging the nature of the reality that we hope to engage the living mm. word. So in my in my book, I use the word the guide, the guide, and the guide. So the guide can be a person, and this mm-hmm. guide happens to be the one that created everything, and so he's you know he's a pretty good guide. The guide, the Bible is a guide to guide us to the guide, so yeah. that we'll be able to follow the one who created the world. And then the act of guiding. When you are being guided through the wilderness or through, you know, on where, wherever it is we're going, that is, in a sense, the role of the church in bringing us into that process of following the guide, the map of where it yeah. is we're going, to live in light of the reality of the one who invites us into the world filled with wonder and creativity and engagement and care and all those mm. things that are part of it. So um, it is taking away the sense that the people want to get of an authoritative thing that I have the truth. I can take this verse and say, I, whenever we say I have the truth, I interpret this way. We've just asked Jesus to set aside as the authority of what it is. This means it. it's um, and the lack of humility is makes it out of context. You, you do such a nice job of explaining that. And then I'm thinking of like picturing a, a scene where somebody's sitting in church or they're reflecting to being part of church years ago and they might struggle with church now and they're picturing in this kind of setting where there's a very authoritative preacher or church structure and somebody is kind of hollering up there the bible says and then doing this so that 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 is in a sense um not what 
what Bart is speaking about, that you can use the Bible in such a way that it's not pointing to the living word. And in that case, yeah. then there's something different going on that is. Before we ask yeah. the last question, which is always. Uh, I just our, say that the amen of a church, when a preacher says, yeah. Jesus has told you to love one another. And the people yeah. say, amen. Yeah. I mean, there's that dynamic of a true word. Jesus has said it. It's in the Bible. And well the church said. says, amen, mm. right? Yeah. And now it's the whole authentic community. That's the dogmatics at work right there. So good. It's so uh, as a as a door towards our last question on hope, um, on page 160, uh, there's just another like beautiful kind of pastoral reminder. You're pulling out this from Bart. Our new identity is as a person found by God. We did not seek. We were sought out. Um this uh, again focus on the work of Jesus Christ and what is happening as compared to there's something more hopeful in this than mm. than some of those old frames of like you know uh, the the lost and how we have to go and and do this and but uh, so there's so much of that in here so even in in your guidebook um, but again thank you for for letting Bart speak I think for those who find Bart daunting or have just kind of that this theology sounds different than I'm used to and it is worth. Um, moving towards and this kind of book this book particularly mm -hmm. can be a real help with that uh, the last question we always ask is uh, along these lines just um, what makes you hopeful today because okay let me just say this first of all <laughs> one of the things I'm really thankful for in listening to you like when you talk about volume four and volume five and this is going to be music and this is um, the family and this is kind of the hospital or healing um, I can see the energy I would say the inspiration that you have for this project. That's such a wonderful kind of picture and sign. Um, so I think I can ask this question with some confidence. What is it that gives you hope today? So, I mean, hope, hope recognizes that there is a possible future that, that God holds that actually functions in our space and time. So, you know, I live in a world where, you know, if you watch the news, you go, there's fracturing everywhere. Um, if you listen to mental health, kind of issues, loneliness, depression, our dominant motifs. There's every reason not to hope. And yet I find that when I speak to people about the nature of a God who is relational and who invites us into the fullness of what it looks like to be whole people in a whole world, um, people resonate with that and they say, you know, I sense that to be true and I can see that all of this is just the outcome of people missing the point. And so to say, you know, this this series that I'm working on and Bart's work is it's really just a re-engagement with reality. Hmm. If by re reality we mean, you know, a life that is lived with God and one another, that joy is the outcome, that freedom is not being free from others, but it's the freedom of being with others, that hmm. being with those who we love and who love us, and where you walk away with a sense of being connected that Everywhere I go, people resonate that this this is the hope of the future. And that in the very nature of what the gospel is all about itself, with the Jesus who comes and humbly walks among the outcasts, the marginalized, brings to them, is a life of hope by virtue of being a person who is present in a listening, embracing, transforming kind of way. And that that Jesus is still available, walking and speaking to us by his spirit, and in those people who are willing to listen to him and say, there's one that needs my love. And the people are actually doing that. And um, if we had more of that news on TV, I'd be yeah. a little bit happy <laughs> yeah. with that. But to say there are some churches that I think are getting the, the good news yeah. nature 
that um, even though we are sinners, that's only a description of our side of the equation. Hmm. The other side is that God loves sinners and he never gives up on them. And so we can say, yes, I'm a sinner. Thank God that God loves people just like me and doesn't cast us aside or say, when you're done, I'll do something with you. But he loves to take even our brokenness and make something good out of it. He takes ashes and makes beautiful things. My hope is that in going through all this, that that is the resonance of what the gospel is about, what Bart wants to bring, and that that is the hope of the church. Well, Thank we're you. very grateful. Thank it's, you so um, much. So for, for listeners, volume one is out now. Volume two is out in May. Volume three is already well, well, well in the works. Almost done, it would seem. And so like, yeah, for anyone who has been, you know, afraid to take on BART before, which I, I understand very much why you would want to avoid that. Uh, it's This is so, so helpful because I think, uh, Dr. Folsom, what you're pointing to is that that. Bart's Bart's theology is not meant to just stay in this academic kind yeah. of philosophy discussion. Like it is meant to be lived out in the life of the church, in the life of individuals, in the life of the world. Um, and and so I am so grateful mm-hmm. that you are willing to take on well, a project of this size to help people understand and be able to see what is so key and important in Bart's work and how that actually is applicable to everyone, not just in like a seminary or graduate sort of concept, but that it is, it is, it is not conceptual. It is, it is reality. And it's, amen to that. And as someone who has read Bart and does read Bart, um, these books would be great to just keep alongside. Mm -hmm. I really have thought about that, that is if you're, if you're kind of reading through or you're even in a reading group or whatever that um it's just so great because sometimes like in a 200 page paragraph you (laughs) you can't you can't find where am i again and actually this book oh right i'm there here's where i am kind Mm -hmm. of on the so thank you so much we'll be we'll be thanking you and praying for you as you spend time in your study working on these things because that i i know you can feel this in your thoughts and in the way you work um those places are kind of solitary places the studies and those but but it gets out to people like us and so um thank you so much one one final metaphor is my wife was a dentist for 36 years and nobody like dentistry has given people the ability to every day do something to take care of their mouth particularly which really takes care of the whole body Hmm. and so i live with this sense of you know how do we bring to the world the sense that the gospel is really it's it's like brushing your teeth flossing your teeth it's basic care of what it means to be humans in a way that invites us to have it be the norm of our life and not just an occasional having a tooth pulled here or brushing our teeth there. Um, so my hope yeah. is the health of the personal huh. spiritual life of humanity through these books. So anyway, thank you. Thank for the you so much for your time. You so and we look forward to meeting you in person, not just on Zoom and, uh, and blessings in your work and in all your conversations that uh, that are so helpful and fruitful. Thank you so much. I did throw out to Richard Topping. You should have me come teach a course we'll, when each of these books come out. Yeah, we will. I mean, in whatever way I about. may have influence, well, I'm we, we'll to definitely, we'll definitely be, um, you know, cajoling. Sure. For yeah, sure. Like after the Lord this. of the Rings releasing each one, you know, you, you can't wait for the next one to come. And so anyway. Yeah, there you I go. Love <laughs> so, thanks so much. Blessings on you. Thank you. 
Rector's Cupboard is a production of Reflector Project and is hosted and produced by Todd Weeb, Allison Williams, and Amanda Mina. Our cupboard master is Ken Bell. Rector's Cupboard is made possible by the generous support of donors. Check out rectorscupboard.ca for past episodes, events, and how you can help fund the podcast. You can also support Rector's Cupboard by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which helps other people find us. Thanks for listening.